This episode is brought to you by Malomo. Malomo offers Shopify and Klaviyo customers the tools to turn shipping from a cost center into a profitable marketing channel through branded shipment emails and order tracking pages. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. This episode is brought to you by Nosto, the world's leading commerce experience platform. Nosto enables personalized shopping experiences without the need for IT resources or a long implementation process. Stay tuned for a special offer exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. This episode is brought to you by Cogsy. Cogsy helps modern brands make smarter inventory purchasing decisions that optimize their working capital and frees up cash to fund growth and marketing initiatives. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast brought to you by Future Commerce. I'm your host, Lee Green, and it's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 68 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I spoke with Laura Modi, the co-founder and CEO of Bobby. Bobby is the only female-founded and mom-led infant formula company in the U.S. With 83% of parents turning to formula within the first year of their infant's life, Bobby is the first European-style organic formula that meets FDA standards. In this episode, Laura shares with us her journey from growing up in Ireland as the oldest of five with dreams of becoming a dietitian, to moving to San Francisco and landing a job at Google, to working for Airbnb, where she also became a mother for the first time and found herself struggling to breastfeed and find a great formula. She talks with us about what it was like to raise a $15 million Series A from investors and over 200 moms using the crowdfunding platform Republic, how she spent four years on product development to create the perfect baby formula, and the challenges she faced with obtaining FDA approval. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe to get updates on our new episode releases happening every Tuesday morning. Until then, we hope you enjoy this episode. Laura, thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm so excited to hear your story in building Bobby. Thanks for joining us. Of course. Thanks for having me, Lee. I'm really excited to chat with you because I have a three-month-old um, and it's my first baby boy. And, you know, having trying to figure out a formula situation has been quite a challenge. So I'm really excited to hear, you know, your journey in building this company and how things have been going. Congratulations. Oh, there's honestly, there's nothing better than speaking to someone who's like, you're in it. You are so in it. Yes. 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 Uh, like literally importing 
from Germany Ooh, formula. You went the illegal route. Look at you. I know. I know. I'm afraid to hear your take on this. Actually. Oh my God. I know. I love it. I mean, look, obviously it was the genesis in many ways of even getting Bobby off the ground. Yeah. Well, congratulations. That's great. Thank you. I know you have three kids of your own. So I'm excited to figure out, you know, where in the process this real, the light bulb went off. Um, but I guess to take it all the way back to your background, um, where are you from originally and what was childhood like growing up? So originally from the West of Ireland and I always thought I would stay in the country, but hmm. uh, yeah, decided, decided to uh, make my way to the States and I haven't turned back now in the last 15 years. But yeah, I grew up in the West of Ireland. I was the eldest, I am the eldest of five, a wow. uh, large Irish Catholic family. And my my dad is an entrepreneur. We grew up in a, a family, a family of entrepreneurs. We are the third generation of a large family business, largest construction clothing manufacturer in Europe. Wow. Um, which is, you know, it's funny. I mean, the biggest, the biggest way to describe it is that they manufacture PPE clothing. And before 2020, I would say PPE and no one would have any idea what I was talking about. Right. But um, yeah, you know, manufacturing wasn't, manufacturing construction clothing wasn't exactly the sexiest thing to stay in. (laughs) It's not really the fashion industry you think of when you're. (laughs) Not exactly. When you're, when you're leaving college, the idea of, of jumping into that wasn't immediately appealing. Uh, so I, I found myself moving into the tech space. And so when you were a kid, though, what did you want to be when you grew up? When you were like, you know, maybe I'm not going to go into that very glamorous industry of construction clothing. You know, I, I want to try to do something else. Was there something else that you were aspiring to be? Yeah, actually, I'll never forget saying to my dad, I really wanted to be a dietitian. Really? And I, very, very random wasn't like I thoroughly enjoyed science to be honest I don't think I was even good at it and uh you know it wasn't like I was so into my health or anything that it was so clear it was and I I kept talking about it I kept talking about it to my dad and my friends I want to be a dietitian and when I when my dad really pressed me on it where is this coming from why do you want to do it I kept going back to the society we live in there was a huge kind of growth in health and wellness. Uh, You know, even diets were a big topic. Obesity was on the rise. And as I was getting into it, he's like, Laura, you don't want to be a dietitian. You're you're an investor. You're looking at an opportunity and you're seeing where the market's going. And you're saying, this is the thing I should be jumping on because it's, there was momentum around it. Mm -hmm. But you're not into this. You don't want to be a dietitian. You want to jump on the momentum and the speed of it. And I mean, I look back now and at the time I remember thinking, oh, you're so wrong. <laughs> this is of course <laughs> what I want to do. And I think about how wise he was to notice that. And it, it hit me as well after him kind of hammering me on this topic of don't go study dietetics. Why don't you get into business? study business, study marketing, study accounting. And I guarantee at the end of it, if you still love the momentum and where diet dietetics is going, you'll find your way into that world. But please just go in and study business. And so did you? I did. <laughs> I did. <laughs> Actually, I got accepted to go to the University of Edinburgh to study dietetics. Bags were packed. I had full intentions in going and 
then I I did get into just study general business in in Dublin and I listened to my dad's wise advice and I took that direction instead. All right. And so what happened from there? You took your dad's advice and what happened? Um I realized I I he's right. I do. I love the adrenaline of um learning kind of the skill set of what it takes to be able to get something off the ground. And then knowing that you have the confidence, because obviously what comes with uh, confidence is having the skills and ability to do so to say, you know, I could take on any industry, jump into it, and I know I could be successful. Um, So my dad, after college, tried to get me to come back to the family business. And again, it wasn't like construction clothing became any sexier. It still, it still wasn't that appealing for me to jump into. So I decided to jump into tech. It was on the rise. And I moved out to California where I first found myself at Google. And I mean, what an amazing first start to be able to join a company like Google. And it teaches you the ins and outs of all things, operations, product, growth, uh, truly one of the best starts. Yeah, that's a big jump. I mean, you moved from Ireland to California. I think it was San Francisco, right? For Google. Yeah. I mean, what inspired you to say, I want to be in the States? The weather was the first thing. <laughs> <laughs> Desperate to get out of the, the the gray skies of Dublin. Uh, did you visit California before or was this kind never, of... No, I had never been to California before. It was definitely, I mean, the concept of you know, being in California and what all outsiders know of California. I mean, truly a dream. Right. Truly. Were you I, disappointed when you arrived? <laughs> I, you know, I mean, no, the, the, the adrenaline for what I knew of California. I mean, it, it hung on for such a long time. The first thing I did was took all my savings and I bought myself, God, when I think back now, I bought myself a Mustang convertible. Mustang McLaren. So American. It was, I just decided I was going all in on this American thing. Yeah. And I'll never forget, American I dream. drive down the 101 and just even, just the concept of it. It was so novel at the time, top down on the car and then just realizing, you know, you can't take a girl out of Ireland. I was burning. I mean, my I was being freckleized every few miles, did not enjoy the top being down. Right. And, uh, a little acclimating, exactly. Acclimating to the California life took a little bit longer, but yeah, it's a lot of sun. It is a lot, a lot of sun on here. You got to wear SPF like every day. It's, it's true. It's yeah. True. So you worked at Google. Um, I know that you also worked at Airbnb following that. How did you jump from Google to Airbnb? Um, it was a beautiful accident, actually. I was doing some work travel for Google and I know one of the trips, I just couldn't find a hotel in New York. I really struggled. Someone Mm -hmm. turned to me and they said, well, why don't you just book an airbed and breakfast? It's like, what the hell is this going on the website? It's like, I'm able to book an apartment in New York city with two bedrooms at the same price as a hotel, if not cheaper. I mean, it blew my mind and it was an immediate reaction I think kind of just even the Irish hospitality in me, I just, to see this idea in action, it, it was so compelling 
So I went to New York. I even called my friends in Dublin. I said, look, you should come meet me here. I'm going to be working for the week, but I have a, a spare room in my apartment. You could stay here too. And they couldn't believe it either. So they flew over. We spent the week together. And at the end of the week on this work trip I was there for with Google, I said, I'm going to work for this company. I need to apply. I need to figure out what they, you know, how I can get involved yeah. because they are really onto something. And I did reach out to the founders and found myself at Airbnb a few weeks later. So how did you pitch yourself to the founders? You reached out to them via oh email God. and then you're like, hey, I'm interested in working for you. I mean, how many employees did they have at the time? They, I mean, yeah, they had less than a hundred. They were still trying to figure out their own kind of uh, growth moments. I mean, at the time I felt like I was joining very late, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, not only becoming an entrepreneur myself now, have I realized that the currency to join a startup is really energy. It's passion. Yeah. It's your connection to like well, what's being built. And I feel that now when I receive LinkedIn emails from people who write the longest love letters around all of the reasons why they need to work at the company, that currency is so much greater than anything else. Right. And I, I knew, you know, coming in as an, as an ops leader, it put me anywhere. Yeah. What do you need? My passion for what they were building was so much greater than, than any specific job. And even when they said, yes, we'll take you anywhere you want, you know, what's the role? And we couldn't really figure out like, what was the title? I turned to, to hand in my resignation at Google. And I remember saying it to my boss at Google and he was all, he was just scratching his head. He was like, so you don't really know what you're going to do. You don't really have a title and just couldn't quite grasp what it was I was seeing. And, right. you know, I had to question myself as well at the time, but obviously you got to make leaps. And that one was, it was a good risk. It sounds like for anybody listening who might want to work at Bobby, that they should contact you <laughs> and try to confess their love for the brand to get hired. It sounds like a, a great end. Yeah. That's exactly it. I will just plug that as much as possible because yeah, you, you can't beat it. If someone yeah. else is going to bed tonight, dreaming about this company, they own it, love it, and will build it yes. as good as I will. And we'll put in the extra work necessary. hundred percent. You yeah. just can't beat it. Yep. That's awesome. So you were at, you were at Airbnb um, for a little over five years. What was your experience like working there? And what are some of the takeaways you have from that experience that has helped you in being a founder? The experience, I mean, it's not like anything else I think I will ever experience in life. One, from a personal standpoint, I made friendships and got an understanding of culture in a way that would probably take decades in any other setting. You know, we were hiring people at such a fast growth rate. And again, everyone became, became family. And mm -hmm. um, on a personal side, I grew and built friendships that will last for life. On the professional side, it was, again, a fast growth professional experience. And the biggest learning was you have to roll with the punches. The company was not the same as it was the week before. The month before, you know, obviously it started to slow, but every week was different. And you either are on board with that change and you're able to run with it and roll with it and do it with a smile on your face, or you're not. And in which case you're not set up to be able to be part of a startup. And it was during this, I realized 
I love fast growth companies. <laughs> I love being in the middle of it. I loved not sleeping. I loved dreaming about the company 24 seven. Um, I loved being on call at random hours because that get that kind of adrenaline to be building something um, that wasn't just a massive revenue driver, but it was a culture changer is, is so impactful. Um, and I, I knew it, I knew it at the time that this was special. And, and it really was. So to now be in a position where you, you're trying to replicate that type of experience is, you know, hopefully, may, maybe we could do it again. What are some of the things you're doing to try to replicate that experience or build that type of culture? Um, hiring is probably one of the biggest. Uh, it was one of the biggest learnings at Airbnb that talent and the people you bring on board are everything, absolutely everything the balance of certain personalities, how people work together. It's not just bringing on people who know exactly how to get the job done. You are building a family. And how does that family all engage with each other so everyone's moving forward? Mm -hmm. Everyone wants to be there for as long as possible. Is It's a really important learning. Um, as fast as we are growing, it's more important that we bring the right people on board. And we have to keep checking in on ourselves that you don't just hire for the sake of hiring. Right. And how do you balance these personalities? I mean, it's, you know, especially as you grow, you get more and more employees. How are you kind of making sure that there's enough balance there and that they stay engaged? What are some of the, you know, tips you have for people that are trying to build culture? Um, within the recruiting process, having someone who's really dedicated to measure someone's values. You know, at Airbnb, we had a group called the Core Values Team. So, you know, you had everyone uh, interviewing for skill sets, and then you met with someone who was purely interviewing you for culture. Mm -hmm. uh, really important uh, that someone's going in with that lens and that lens alone. So after Airbnb, I, I know that you've had, you you know, a board member for TaskRabbit, Eat Real. How did you stumble upon the idea for Bobby? What was that aha moment? It's so funny when people when people ask where you know where what's your background you know how does this make sense and obviously you just heard my background there is no connection to creating powdered milk and working at Airbnb zero. Um, I had my first daughter while I was at Airbnb. I was the director of hospitality at the time. Obviously, we just spoke about this. Loved my job, loved my career, everything about it. I went into having Mary. And I just assumed that breastfeeding would be easy, beautiful. All of that, you know, beauty that you see in the movies and on Instagram, breastfeeding was just going to be easy. Irish Catholic woman, of course, I'm going to be able to do this. And I felt lied to by the world. That feeling when you realize that your body is not able to nourish this child that you've just grown is just heartbreaking mm -hmm. and um it was in that moment I was on maternity leave I was five days into having her and I was there with a lactation consultant who was trying to you know educate me on god knows what you know hold, <laughs> they all have something different to say by the way like I don't know how many you saw but I saw like three and it's like they all have something different I don't understand why <laughs> there's totally. like always different opinions on everything it's like, you know, take your, you know, your multiple hands you have available and just squeeze your boobs in these directions and then hold your child in this direction. I'm like, 
this is nuts. There's nothing easy about this at all. Right. There's nothing natural about it. It feels like there's like, I think a lot of women, including myself, you think, oh, this is what like nature, this is going to be easy. You're going to latch on. It's going to just happen. And then you're like, wait a minute, this is like a whole schooling. I have to now like understand what is happening right now. Why is this not as easy as it feel like it should be? And I mean, Lee, it's exactly what you're saying that really took me back, which was the reality did not match expectations at all. I have right. no problem with hard stuff, with you know things that don't go as planned. It's but usually there is some sort of an expectation that it may be that way. Mm-hmm. You're equipped knowing what the journey is going to be like, and to be in a moment where I mean, my entire life is about planning. That's how I operate, and I'm sitting there going, "Who the hell lied to me?" How did nobody sit me down and tell me this is going to be the worst nightmare you've ever had? Right. And the most time consuming thing you could possibly do, which is like every two hours around the clock, morning, day, night, throughout for weeks. It's like, who has time for that? 35 hours a week, you were breastfeeding a child. Yeah. It's a full-time job. Yeah. It's like a 24-7 job. Yeah. It's insane. Um. Oh God. I mean, it just like, and then at the same time, you want to act like, you know, you got this mom, women are amazing. This is natural. And you're putting a smile on your face and powering through the pain. Right. Everyone's like, yeah, it hurt for me too, but I powered through. And it's like, oh, we're giving awards for like, who can tolerate the most pain. I I just don't plan to be a hero in that department. Thanks. (laughs) You know, I don't. You're here. It's and me and you are having this dialogue here. I like, I, I mean, my daughter's five years old now. I feel like five years ago, I couldn't have that conversation. The idea of complaining about breastfeeding, the idea of openly talking about having to turn to another solution was, it was unheard of. I mean, you shouldn't because that means you're not doing what's best for your child. Oh my gosh, the amount of shame on not breastfeeding. It just sounds like, oh my, wait, you don't want to breastfeed? Are you sure you don't want to breastfeed? You're like, what is, is it really that big of a deal? And you know more than I do. You've probably done a ton more research and science on this. Is breastfeeding that much better? Is it? No, absolutely not. I could not say that with more confidence. I mean, because you imagine all the the stuff we're eating, right? And even just from a diet, you know, alone, if you're not eating super, super healthy, I mean, is it really that good? You know, and I want to hear your take. Why, why is it really not what it's cracked up to be? So, I mean, look, breast milk is the most dynamic, personal food in the world. I mean, truly, it is magic. It is, when you truly think about it, we are developing food in our body for another human to grow, thrive, and live. It is Mm -hmm. incredible Mm -hmm. that science allows this to happen. And we should be in awe of that. We should celebrate that. And those that it's easy for, absolutely, you should be doing that. And even if it's not easy and you're putting in the work and you really want to do it and you can get the supply, you know, go for it. You should be able to do what works for you. Um, But the reality, it, it doesn't work for everyone. And it's not just because maybe it takes too much time. It's because we live in a world where modern parenting looks so much different. Like 40 years ago, we did not have the same rate of surrogacies, adoption, gay couples having babies, double mastectomies, um, women having kids older, they're on medication. I mean, the laundry list goes on for all of the reasons why breastfeeding may not be the best option. And 
for us to be in a position where we're going, oh, but breast milk is best, just not for those. That's mm -hmm. not a, That's not a good narrative. It's not a good narrative right. at all. Right. I mean, there's so much talk about the, you know, immunity that your kid gets from breast milk and it just seems a little hyper kind of like glamorized breast milk being this magic formula, which I understand it can be, but I don't think it always is. What's the real science behind breast milk? The real science behind breast milk, it goes back to what I was saying, which is it's, it's personal and dynamic. So what you get from it, the immunity in the vitamins and minerals that come from breast milk, build an immune, immune system for that baby. Those are mimicked in formula. So formula has exactly the same nutritional makeup as breast milk, exactly the same. The same carbs, proteins, and fats so that your baby is still getting all of the nutritional value that one would get from breast milk. There's nuances that come with a baby's system and a mom's system that creates some of the like personalization in that breast milk that can make it a better match. But that does not mean that it's the same for everyone. And it does not mean that it's better for everyone. I mean, you just highlighted it. If your diet's a certain way, if your own immune system is bad, mm -hmm. if your own environment doesn't support it, then actually maybe it isn't better off and it's not giving the immune system that your child needs. Yeah. Yeah. What are some of those things? So your bad diet, like toxic environment, um, you know, toxic creams, things that you're putting on your skin, like it's a whole slew of stuff. I mean, we live in a very toxic world. <laughs> I do. mean, from our house to the furniture, from the cleaning products to the beauty products, the makeup products, the hair, the everything, the food that's full of pesticides to the water that's contaminated. I mean, it's like a whole laundry list of shit. Like, you know, I mean, <laughs> I know I'm a really healthy person and I don't even know like what could be passing through me that would be, you know, great. <laughs> like all of those things. Um, it's all of those things. I mean, you, you often hear the, are there traces of X, Y, and Z found in breast milk? So if you are in, if you are in any way consuming uh, chemicals, whether it's from physical products or you're actually consuming them, then you better believe the traces of those could show up in your breast milk. Right. Yeah. Ah. So, so you went five days, which is, you know, way longer than me. I think I tried breastfeeding for like two <laughs> days and was like, I'm good. I'm good. Um, <laughs> let's get that formula in here. Um, so what was that experience like when, when you're trying to breastfeed, you're going through these challenges and what, what else happened kind of through the journey that developed the idea for Bobby? So once I realized that my body was failing me and my daughter on being able to feed her, I had to, obviously you're in survival mode. Okay. And I by failing, just real quick, by failing, you mean it was hurting too much? Um, so actually, yeah, great question. No, I got mastitis. So mm. it was, it was, a, it was a journey that started from pain, which is my daughter couldn't latch very well. Mm -hmm. And that latch led to a bad bite. That bite led to a lot of blistering and... I mean, it has essentially led to an infection. Ouch. That infection is called mastitis. Mm -hmm. Very, very common, which is the other thing that I wasn't aware of. At the time, I felt like I was the only one in the world who had this infection <laughs> of course. and bleeding nipples yeah. and, you know, all of these things. Like, this is crazy. I have more blood coming out than I do milk. Oh, like, geez. why is this normal? Um, and 
I, it was, it was the mastitis and the blocking that I wasn't able to keep powering through. Mm -hmm. So the milk was being blocked and I couldn't get it out. And I had a fabulous lactation consultant. Um, who, I mean, first off, the idea that we call people a lactation consultant is, is one problem as well, which is, you know, it makes you believe there's only support to help you lactate. Which is true, isn't it? Because <laughs> there isn't much support about how to help you stop breastfeeding. That's no. for sure. Holy sh I mean, honestly, there is, where's the lactation stop consultant, you know? Like, oh my God. Really? Oh, where are they? <laughs> I, I've, I've joked about this before, which is, I bet if you, we need, we need to look into this, more people who are probably searching on Google, like how to stop making breast milk, how to stop breastfeeding. Yes more so than the conversation we're hearing on the outside. It's done quietly, privately, usually at 2 a.m. on their phone, trying to figure out how do I stop breastfeeding? We'll get right back to our show, but first, a word from our sponsors. Malomo is on a mission to help brands create lasting relationships with their customers. Did you know that the average customer tracks their shipments around four to five times per order? And during Black Friday or Cyber Monday, that can sometimes double? That's a lot. Why not use that time with excited customers to drive sales and build your brand with a tool like Malomo? With Malomo, you can use branded shipment emails and order tracking pages to drive additional purchases by showing new products, sales, subscription options, and other engaging content simply by being proactive and managing delivery communications. Get 30% off your first three months with Malomo today by going to gomalomo.com slash CEO. That's G-O-M-A. L-O-M-O dot com slash stairway to CEO. Nosto enables e-commerce brands to deliver personalized digital shopping experiences at every touchpoint across every device. Designed for ease of use, Nosto empowers brands to build, launch, and optimize one-to-one -one omni-channel marketing campaigns and digital experiences without the need for dedicated IT resources or a lengthy implementation process. Leading brands in over 100 countries use Nosto to grow their business and delight their customers. As a Stairway to CEO listener, you can take advantage of an exclusive 10% discount off your first six months. Learn more or request a demo by going to nosto.com slash Stairway to CEO. That's N-O-S-T-O dot com slash Stairway to CEO. Cogsy empowers modern brands to be more agile and adaptive when it comes to their inventory. Leverage Cogsy's prioritization, predictive analytics, and automated purchase flow to always have the right stock on hand at the right time. Not only that, but Cogsy has an innovative plan B for those times when you do run out of stock. You can run back orders that keep customers happy and beat the conversion rate of back in stock notifications. Get your first two months free when you sign up by going to cogsy.com slash stairway to CEO. That's C-O-G-S-Y dot com slash stairway to CEO. Honestly, I saw maybe three consultants at the hospital decided not for me, cold turkey, don't do cold turkey, especially on day two, when day three Ooh. is when your milk comes plowing through. So like, it's like revving up an engine and then slamming on the brakes. And <laughs> it is not fun, but no one told me there was no one who could tell me what to expect. If you decide to quit cold turkey breastfeeding, which is insane that no one could tell me not even, not even a doula knew oh. how to stop breastfeeding. I mean, it's, 
it's insane. There needs to be like a formula consultant here that can like help you get off one train and onto the next, because like you said, it's, it's, it's a shit show. <laughs> it's, it's, horrible. it's, I mean, you know, it kind of, um, it goes back to what you're saying. There should be a, a formula consultant. I mean, there should really, we should just package all this together and call them a feeding consultant. Like, <laughs> I mean, there we go. I, I need someone to holistically help me no matter what my goals are. Maybe I do have goals to recover from mastitis and then go back to breastfeeding and then do some supplementing mm-hmm. and then change over when I go back to work. But like it's, they call it a journey for a reason. Like it's not like a, oh, chapter one, chapter two, chapter, and they all look the same. Everyone's is, you know, it's, it's all entirely different. Yeah. And obviously what, what I've come to learn during this research phase is 83% of parents will turn to formula at some point in that first year. It's a huge yeah. percentage. So we, we, the silent majority are turning to formula. But yeah, silent just, majority. I like how you said silent because yeah. it is so like hard to speak up about this. And I'm pretty, I feel like strong just based on my experience and I hopefully am not offending too much, too many people <laughs> listening, but I do feel very strongly that this is like, we've created a culture against formula feeding. And I look at myself, my husband, a lot of people in my life that are formula fed, they turned out just fine. I have a very strong immune system. Like I just don't understand where this pressure is coming from and why oh i mean that's another podcast (laughs) we don't have to dive into it we can stay on product but yes the silent majority this 80 percent there yeah where so where do you go you know you're like okay this isn't for me anymore I mean, I, like I said, I'm, I'm shipping product from Germany. I, I, we're using German formula. It's got better standards than the U.S. So I'm sure you maybe had a similar journey when you decided, okay, let's go to formula. W- what did you do from there? Yeah, so I'm, I'm running to a pharmacy at like, you know, a silly hour at night needing to find something to feed her. And I'm in the pharmacy and it, it like hit me. Like, why am I buying food between diapers and baby bottles you know in the middle aisle of a pharmacy like not only do I feel guilty not being able to sit there and lounge on a couch and pull out my boob I'm now stuck (laughs) in a pharmacy oh and even worse I had to ring the shame bell you know the shame bell was like hey you know can you come unlock this product And and let me in. I need food for my child, please. I need my child. And you you can feel the judgment. It's like it reminded me, you know, rewind 10 months earlier when I was buying a pregnancy test. Right. Why do I feel so bad? Why do I want the bag not to be transparent? (laughs) Get home. Um, That guilt, the shame, the embarrassment. Now, to be fair, most of it is internal. You know, it's it wasn't as if I had all these voices saying, don't formula feed or it's not good. It was something about society that has made me believe personally and inside that I was doing second best for my child. Yes. That guilt, it played on me for the next year, Mm -hmm. even when I returned to work, uh, that I just found myself in, in my spare time researching the formula marketplace, how to manufacture infant formula. Why is it? This is the big question. Why is it that the same formula in the US that we ourselves would have had as kids? Now, I was on something different in in Ireland, but the same products over the last 40 years are the same ones that we're feeding our own children. That seems nuts. Right. 
What yeah. industry hasn't changed in 40 years, especially in the CPG space, especially in food, organic? And infant formula, to me, was one of the remaining industries, the remaining products that we have not seen any change on in the guts of 40 years. Mm -hmm. So what were moms doing? They were doing exactly what you do, which is turning to an illegal, and I don't understand, an illegal black market to buy their baby's powdered milk. Right. They just weren't <laughs> proud of U.S. formulas. Yes. Because you look at the labels of these U.S. formulas, you're like, what is wrong with people? <laughs> like, why is that in there? Like, yeah, what is why are the standards for the U.S. so low that we as Americans have to buy from another country? That's insane. Why? It, why? It's insane. We're all going to look back when we're all wiser and go, do people really pack suitcases full of milk? To bring, I mean, like, this is the 21st century. I mean, there's not even English on the label. Thank God I have a German husband. He can read the formula box, but I swear to God, you can, otherwise you can't read it. It's no. in German. If Google Translate knew that their biggest claim to fame would be translating European formula, formula. boxes. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, it is, it was crazy. And you, you know, I think that's part of an entrepreneurial journey, which is you spot opportunities by seeing the ridiculousness of mm -hmm. why certain things are the way they are. And you start questioning, this is, this is odd. Like someone needs to call this out. This is a really unusual position to be in that we are turning to an illegal system to feed our baby. So, I mean, it was that to me, that was more validation. And it's illegal, just to clarify, because it's a European product that doesn't have the ability to sell. Like, why can't they just sell it in the US? <laughs> why? Good question. Okay, so imagine a spectrum that the FDA operates on. On one end of the spectrum, they are responsible for uh, allowing drugs onto the marketplace. Massive safety requirements for any new drugs. They're curing people. On the other end of the spectrum is food to nourish people. Food often isn't the sole nutrition for anyone. You're consuming food with many other things. So the regulation for food um, is not as high as on the other spectrum where drugs is. Infant formula is right in the middle. It's not considered a food and it's not considered a straight up drug. But infant formula is, however, the sole nutrition for a child, the most vulnerable audience that exists. Mm -hmm. So in many ways, you need to have heavy regulation. If we didn't have regulation on infant formula, who knows what would be on the marketplace and actually far scarier. So, you know, I, I play, you know, I keep saying you kind of have to nurture the tension in this industry because there's a reason for everything being the way it is. But you can also look at it with the lens and say, but we could be doing better. Like, of course we could be doing better. However, regulation exists. And that regulation is you need to meet a certain nutritional profile, but it's also how you manufacture it the quality, the safety, the testing, the security of the supply chain. There's so much more that goes into it to make sure that the product that gets into the hands of those parents, it's safe. Now, in another country or another continent, obviously they're making a world-class product. I mean, we look at it, the nutritional values that come from the European infant formula, they're, they're fabulous and parents are flocking to it. 
But as a country, we don't know what those manufacturing standards are. Where in the supply chain did it go to get into your hands? That that system has not been um, approved, set up. It's not monitored. So there is a level of risk. But what it's you're weird. seeing... Yeah, it's ahead. weird that it's uh, illegal because if I can just go to like organicstart.com and buy, you know, foreign, like European formulas online... It feels like it's not illegal. Like, are they going to get in trouble? Am I going to get in trouble? Like, how does this work if it's available online to just purchase like it's a normal website? You know, it just it doesn't feel like it's illegal in any way. I know, I know. And that, I mean, look, that's why it's called a, a black market because the market continues and, you know, there's many other products out there in the world that kind of fall into this category too. And hmm. um, I'm also, I think like one of the biggest positions I've put myself into um, being a CEO of an infant formula company is it's not my position to point fingers at one type of an industry that works or doesn't. Mm-hmm. Or to be honest, even the large infant formula companies here in the US. I mean, they have hundreds of scientists on their team that have put decades of work into developing amazing products that we see today. And what again, while there is opportunity to improve. There is reason why everyone is approaching it the way they're approaching it. And the other reason as well that I I kind of put myself in a position of saying like, we shouldn't be pointing fingers at what might be considered good or bad is unlike a granola bar, if someone said to you, oh, you ate that granola bar, that's not good for you. You'd be like, okay, whatever. I won't eat another one. No big deal. It doesn't really bother you. You could have a brand tell you that other brand isn't good. And you're like, oh, okay, that brand, you know, has highlighted reasons I shouldn't have this product. In the world of infant formula, if Bobby, if I came out and started speaking badly about another infant formula, another brand, I am essentially pointing a finger to a mother's choice. And sometimes it might've been their only choice, their only option. And it's such a sensitive product, extraordinarily sensitive. The last thing you want to feel is, wow, the product, the brand that I have fed my child, who maybe is now six years of age, is apparently bad. That leaves a massive amount of guilt. So there's something about this industry, I think, if we, if I personally believe this, which is we have to level up and get outside of the product side of it. And it's, it's, it's by changing the culture, changing the conversation. We need to be open about the fact that overall, we all need to be doing better. And if you turn to formula at whatever point, for whatever brand, for whatever price, your child still has an opportunity to go to Harvard too. Like, (laughs) not about pointing fingers at people's choices. Uh, It's about giving them more choices. Yeah, but hopefully also not confusing them because I think when there's so many choices and we're not really, there's so much misinformation, you know, in this country especially, it's really hard to figure out what to choose. Here, here. Totally agree. (laughs) You know, you have so many different points of view, so many different people who believe different things. I mean, where's the source of truth? Bobby. <laughs> and we'll end there. No, <laughs> another plug. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so 
you guys have, Bobby has only been in market for six months. That's pretty incredible. Well, talk to me about, first off, you had four years of product development. So maybe we can talk a little bit about those four years of going through FDA approval and regulation. And this is a highly, like you said, regulated industry. What was that like going through that for years? Well, I think the first reality was when you enter a space that looks and feels a particular way, you need to realize that you're entering their world. So, you know, that, that was a big wake up call. I'm coming in, you know, there, where there's a few moms and we're working in a basement and we raised a little bit of money, but the other competitors in the market are large pharma companies. They've been doing this for decades. And that, that kind of trust building that's required now to get to a place where you can be on the market and it's almost like a fee in time and approvals that, that sit there. Entering the world of infant formula because it is so heavily regulated means that you have to get it manufactured in a particular place in a particular way. And we realized very early on that it's going to cost us a fortune to get to market. And it's going to take a few years to get FDA approval. So, did you know this early on? When did you realize no, this? Of course I didn't. I, I started <laughs> the company when I was two weeks pregnant with my second child. And I turned to my husband and I was like, okay, look, we'll use this pregnancy as a ticker. I will move some personal money into this account and I will totally be able to self-fund this and get this off the ground. Very, you know, very naive. I'll have a product on the market in nine months and it will only cost so much. But first trimester goes down. I was like, yeah, that's not going to work. <laughs> Enough research went in. I was like, I need to raise a lot of money and it's going to take multiple years. This is not just going to be done when this child comes out. Um, and actually, in fact, I ended up having another child after that, even before FDA approval. So second and third child during this research phase or development phase. And um, once I realized that self-funding this wasn't going to be an option, it was turning to uh, venture capital. How are we going to raise the money to get to a place where we can put this on the market? And early on, again, you're, you're going in, you're pitching a load of VCs on a concept that you have zero background in. There's never been kind of, you know, a new player entering the market. There's no one out there that really looks like Bobby. And I was eight months pregnant. And I, I won't say the exact number of how many people I pitched, but it was a lot of people. Yeah. And there was definitely a point of like, okay, if I don't close this round, it's not going to happen. Like I'm about to have this baby. I need the money. We need to be able to advance forward. And um, yeah, two weeks before um, Colin arrived, I closed two and a half million dollars from several VCs and, you know, the ones who came in, they, they got it. They saw the industry, they saw the opportunity and they were all in. And, you know, so, and I look back now, I'm so grateful for those early believers yeah. to write those first checks. What, what metrics did you have that early? Because if you're pre-product, I mean, what were you telling, what were you selling? I mean, obviously you're selling them the dream, but what did you have traction wise to get VC investors? 
they're buying into you, I think is the first thing. And mm-hmm. people would keep saying that to me. I'm like, no, 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 there's no way. I mean, like, you know, they have to, I have to give them something tangible. They have to be able to see it. But at the same time, you can't just whip up infant formula, you know, go to a farmer's market, get some metrics. Like it doesn't work in this industry. It's not going to happen. And after multiple pitches, it did. It continued to hit me that they are buying into my passion, my confidence, my ability to execute. And what I had was very fortunately, you know, a decade of experience in the tech world and fast growing companies to be able to point to, to show that I did have a track record of getting yeah. shit done. Um, yeah. Having those referrals, you know, I, I I don't think when you're in the moment of growing your career and in these companies, do you often pause and go, the work that I'm doing today, the relationships I'm building today, you know, how I'm getting shit done is going to pay off one day. Mm-hmm. You don't know that in the in the moment, but it did. And, you know, I I didn't have much. I walked into those pitches with a vision and a spreadsheet, which was, this is the recipe. <laughs> And that was it. Um, I like that you said investors invest in your confidence because there's a different, you know, they're investing in you, but they're definitely investing and looking for a very high confidence level. And it's interesting because, you know, confidence is kind of this, like, what does that really mean? What does that really look like? Um, and it can come from experience, but really the way you speak about the product and the way your vision and all these things, I mean, it really develops this picture of confidence of like, do I want to back this person? Do I think they can pull this off? Do I believe that they can push through walls to make this happen? And that's really hard to convey sometimes for a lot of founders, even if they have an amazing idea and a huge opportunity that lays ahead of them. Absolutely right. And sometimes you're meeting people where you only have a very short window to get to know them. And it's you're right, it's hard to see the tenacity and the grit, which is why sometimes it's your decade before that, that will play a role in someone being able to determine. I mean, obviously, I don't think there was one investor who invested, there wasn't any investor who invested that didn't call someone up from my past. Mm. So you every move you make in life plays into that. And, you know, then I was able to speak to my past with a massive amount of confidence. In those moments too, I think you're also in a position where people will want to see you in the middle of a debate. Why have you made this decision? Why do you think going to market this way is the right approach? How do you think you're going to acquire uh, customers at a low price if the traditional companies are doing it this way? It's not about saying yes to whatever their ideas are. It's like, what is that healthy debate that truly shows you know what you're talking about? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so you also raised on Republic. Um, You closed your Series A, which is 15 million two months ago. Can you talk about your experience and any advice you have for founders that are thinking of raising on a platform like Republic? I know you had like over 200 moms invest and that's, that's amazing. So what was it like? fundraising on a crowdfunding type platform oh i'm so excited we did it it was well for i mean first off we didn't have we didn't have any issues raising vc money we were very fortunate we saw fabulous growth and very clear product market fit we weren't reinventing the wheel we were putting out a product people wanted needed it was pandemic proof this was a product that was growing so we were able to raise money and i think the biggest reality check that we had in speaking to traditional VCs was why is it that the same, why is it that the people who are creating value for our business, which were parents, our customers, 
especially moms, were not the ones that were returning that value because as we were growing our business, they weren't investors. So it was a pretty clear, I mean, yeah, it was a pretty clear reason to say, let's create this new vehicle on a crowdfunding platform and let's allow moms, our customers, to invest in the business. And you ask the question, like, what was it like? Was it easy? You know, how was it to set up? It wasn't easy. It's not easy to raise um, large sums of money in a crowdfunding way. And, you know, there's a lot of disclosures. Um, it takes a lot of legal work, a lot of investor alignment. You have to manage a lot of relationships, a lot of questions that come through. So I think the reality for me was, as I'm going through this process, I was like, I get it. Now I get why people just turn to like two investors and that's all they raise from. And that makes sense. It's, it's a much easier, cleaner process. But it doesn't, it doesn't reinvent your business. It doesn't, you know, how you build a company is almost more important than like what it is you're building. And I mean, the fact that we get to go to bed tonight knowing that we have 200 new investors who are parents most likely using our product today is such a dream. They're walking ambassadors for the company in a way that no other raise would be able to accomplish. Yeah. And from a product perspective, I just keep going back to this, you know, hip Germany formula that I've been, you know, using with my kid. I'm wondering what is the clear difference in your product, in the Bobby product? I know it's inspired by breast milk, but, you know, what else about what is in Bobby is so great? So first off, I mean, it has to mirror breast milk in the same way that every other infant formula does. But it's not just about the macro nutritionals. It's about the ingredients that you choose to put in. And it's about the nuances of the recipe that what we believe are kind of get to the optimal results. So with Bobby, we did two things. We said, first, how can we develop a product that could mirror and like inspired by EU nutritional standards? which are different, you know, there's a minimum and a maximum requirement of that, of each ingredient, each nutritional requirement that you see in infant formula. We designed ours to mirror nutritional standards. There's not one US formula that would be able to pass the bar in Europe for meeting EU nutritional standards, except Bobby. On the ingredient side, we chose ingredients that we would feel proud of like leaving out palm oil, one of the leading indicators to constipation. You know, one of the only signs you have is, you know, does this product work for my baby is you can tell when they're uncomfortable. And usually it's got to do with constipation. So by leaving out palm oil, it has made baby's stools better. And I'm going to be very uh, grotesque for a moment and say that we have received so many love letters from parents about their baby's poop. It's like the only validation we have. We're like, oh, it works. That's great. <laughs> their babies are pooping better. They're happy as parents because their babies are happy. Um, we use pasture-raised dairy, organic milk. I mean, ultimately, this product is milk. You should be sourcing the best milk. So we went out and we worked with an amazing supplier, Organic Valley, and their cows graze on grass 40% more than traditional organic so it's, it's, again, it's the nuances, it's the details mm -hmm. of the ingredients and the recipe 
that ultimately make it better. That's awesome. Um, I can't wait to dive in more about the product because I think it's super interesting. Um, but, you know, tell us about how you went to market. What was your go-to-market strategy? So I led community at Airbnb. And it was a very fortunate experience because I realized that for certain brands, it's not your marketing team driving it, it's the people, it's your customers. And for us, there was no more powerful group of people than moms. And it hit us very early on that the biggest driver of our success is going to be the word of mouth. It's going to be the social proof. It's going to be that crazy researcher mom friend who says to her other mom friend, hey, by the way, I spent seven hours researching infant formula and you should go with this one. I mean, that's, that's ultimately how we all make decisions, right? You contact your friend, they give you a spreadsheet, you just follow the spreadsheet. And yeah, I mean, I've never seen anything like it in my life after being a mom. I mean, honestly, it's like, it's a cult. It's like, oh my God, all of a sudden there's all these groups, all yeah. these people, they're like friends that you don't really talk to before, but oh, you have a kid question or baby something and they're like responding right away. It's insane. It's like, there's like, yes, motherhood is kind of a cult. And I feel like everybody talks it, it's and anything can spread like wildfire. Wildfire. It makes you yeah. feel like not only is it a cult, but it makes it, it makes the world feel smaller when you're a mom, because you just realize how quickly something can spread. And it is, it, it took off. And we knew it took off because we were very, very, very intentional about spending the two years prior to launching building community. And often products and companies will say, well, you can't do that until you have a product on the market. And for us, it wasn't just about the product. It was about shaking the stigma, having the conversation. We would invite moms to these behind the scenes working sessions every week. We would have these hour long sessions with moms just talking about removing the stigma, not feeling guilty. What are you looking for in a product? And building these, these beautiful ambassadors and, I mean, change makers. They were, they were the ones driving many of the decisions and the ideas and the approaches. And then when we went to market, we had hundreds of moms who were dying to share that we had just launched. And while today it may not have seen, it, it does not seem like it was that many people for a brand to just like, you know, come out the gate and to have hundreds of people say, hey, this company exists, but I also got to have a seat at the table. I also got to meet with the founders. I told them these ideas. I played a role in the development, hundreds of them, is, I believe, kind of the secret sauce of, of what allowed the business to take off. That's really interesting. So you were taking feedback from a ton of moms kind of on the on the way towards preparing to launch to kind of get them to be ambassadors, essentially, yep. for about two years. And I mean, everything from content development, like what's the education you want to see, you know, feedback around like articles, like how to supplement, how to go back to work, how to tell my mother in law, I don't want to breastfeed. And, <laughs> you know, when you're a small business, and you only have so many people in the company don't just rely on that one content writer you have or the one doula you are working with as as an advisor you have to turn to who are the people that are in it today all day every day and it's the moms who are in it and to have them come to the table and be able to share very openly it meant that they were playing a role in building this company 
So tell us about one of the most challenging moments you've had in building the business and how did you overcome it? <laughs> um, I'm laughing because it's, it's a moment that would probably be the death of a company. It should have been the death of a company. And I still count my blessings every day that we recovered from it. So it's been it, it, you know many years to get to market with the FDA uh, approved product, but throughout that journey, and it was about a year and a half in, we decided to pilot um, one product onto the market, an early product to start seeing what people, how they would gravitate towards it. But because we didn't yet have the FDA green light, we were marketing it as a, like not the sole nutrition for an infant, essentially like to a toddler. You have to be very careful about how you market the product. I thought we were very clever. I thought this was genius. You know, we get to get a sense of if people like it, at least we can get it out in the market. You know, you hear from investors all the time, all the time. You know, you need you need some early traction. Right. You really need to early traction. Yep. God, there's certain like playbooks for if we're going to know if this works. And it's like, you know, how are you going to get that early traction before you go to market? How are you going to get an early pulse? I just... God, I look back now and I think, how wrong. <laughs> we didn't have to do this. So we took a product to market and the FDA showed up at our warehouse 10 days into launching and they shut us down. They asked oh us gosh. to do a recall of our product. And I say recall slowly and multiple times here because when it happened, I couldn't say it at all. It is a word that could stop a company from ever being in existence again, yeah. especially in the food space and especially in the baby food space. Mm -hmm. You have a recall, that could be it. Yeah. We had a recall because of a labeling issue, marketing issue. But I'll never forget how early on that happened and thinking, we may never recover from this. Mm. And instead, what we ended up doing was um, we weren't defiant we weren't playing the martyr. We handled the recall quickly and with grace. And then we immediately got back on the saddle and we were open about it. We told our story. It was mismarketing. We shouldn't have put that product on the market. And we immediately started marching towards getting the FDA green light. And I think about what kind of that moment did for us as a business, not just kind of the education of the of how to be able to handle a recall, but it was an education of the industry that we are about to walk into. We are walking into an industry that is, is heavily regulated, right. with massive companies watching your every move. This, there's no, the word of, you know, that we use here all the time, like disruption, you can't go and break things. Yeah. It's like this whole tech dude culture oh, yeah. of like, oh, go and, you know, break things and, you yeah. know, beg for forgiveness later. And like, it just, just doesn't apply to every industry. A hundred percent not, and especially not in this industry. Um, yeah. Disruption and in infant formula. It's like, you want to be very, very, very careful. It goes back to kind of the safety requirements. That is like number one. So piloting a product even though it was a great product, you you have to follow the rules. And it's very, very important. And that was, it was a huge challenge. It was a big wake-up call, a massive learning. I, I believe we are the smallest company now in this category or in the food space that has ever had a recall and recovered from it in the country. So um, yeah, 
you know, you, you gotta, you gotta tell the story, you gotta own your history. And we now refer to it as part of our heroin journey. So. Well, wow. You guys survived. So, and it sounds like transparency is key to kind of recovering from something like that, especially with your customers, um, which sounds like you're very transparent about what happened and why, and just quickly, you know, went back to bat. Um, so being a founder obviously involves an incredible amount of persistence. Um, you know, you've really got to work hard every day. What's a routine activity or thought process that helps you stay on track and positive every day? So I do this thing every day, which is it's, it's my personal and professional check-in and a personal professional check-in. It is as simple as it's a spreadsheet with every day you put your date down and I rate myself on how I'm feeling personally and professionally on a scale of one to five. And it's almost like a cleansing at the end of the day. And usually it happens around the routine of me just about to get into bed. I brush my teeth, I get into bed. You know, you always kind of scan your phone for a second. And I pull up my spreadsheet and I rate myself. Like, just take a second and I check in. I'm like, personally, today was a four professionally today was a two <laughs> and it's like a closure for the day because sometimes and oftentimes when you're building a company as early as you are it can be a professional roller coaster I mean yeah. an absolute roller coaster I would leave days after speaking with like the founder of a major company who finally took my 20th email begging to talk <laughs> And I would leave after having a 15 minute conversation on such a high, I mean, such a high. And it was the energy and boost I needed to be able to like get up and do this again the next day. And then the next day I had some, you know, issue in the company that cost us $20,000. And now I had to go like report this to the board. And it was like, oh crap, like, how did I find myself here? Yeah. And the next day you have another high and it's, that roller coaster of emotions is sometimes hard to see those highs or see those lows when you're in it. So usually at the end of a month, then I, I like to kind of nerd out and chart where I'm at and, and you get to see how much of a roller coaster it is. And what I have noticed um, in charting this now over the last three years is the personal side usually has a bit more consistency to it. Mm. The professional side can truly be like a five one day, one the next, five, one, five, one. Yeah. <laughs> On the personal side, I could have like a week where I'm just a solid two. Right. Next week, a solid five. Anyway, um, that has become my routine, and it's a really nice way to cleanse at the end of the day. That's interesting. I feel like if I did that, I might be just up all night thinking about why the day was a two and how I would change it the next day to be a five or six. You know, I, it might keep me up, my head spinning, but I also am a light sleeper and kind of don't sleep very well anyway. So that's pretty <laughs> But um, what's the biggest thing you've learned about being becoming a leader and CEO? It's all about your people. Um, it feels cliche in many ways to say that because I feel like I was always told that myself. And I'll take it to the next level by saying the people that you find that are completely irreplaceable for you, you give them the world because they are worth the world. There is nothing that can be done. Your entire company goes around because of the people that you hire and how you recognize them, reward them, support them. And there is hands down people that give me the sweats at night if I thought about losing them. Like the idea of some of these people walking out 
is some of my worst nightmares because they truly are founders, owners, developers of this business more than myself. They are incredible. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, cause everybody talks about team, 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 culture, culture, but yeah, to really kind of put it that way, it's, um, it just comes across different. I think it's like, it, it is how it should be that you have a team that you're so connected to passionate about and has done so well. That's it's hard to find good talent. It's really hard to find good talent. And early on it's, um, there's a, there's a tipping point if you get it wrong and it can be very hard to recover from it and making sure when you know, you've nailed it, it's the most magical thing. But if you find you're in a position, someone said this to me recently, if you find you're in a team meeting and you're sitting in that meeting and you're going, you're not, you're, you're looking at a few of these hires and you're going, you know, how, why are they here? Whether it's they're lacking passion or they don't have a skill set, you got to correct this. You got to correct it quickly. And correcting it, like going back to your recruiting process, thinking about the talent that you're bringing on board, putting more time and attention into it. Sometimes it's like, it's a hard thing to say that you could have people in your company that are not the right fit. Yeah, but You're not doing this just to please everyone. You have to, you are building a machine and that machine is run by people who contribute their passion and their talent. And you have to build that machine. As a CEO, your job is to build the machine that runs and every component of that machine, it's people. And it is such a wake up call when you, when you realize that it's these individuals that are running it. It's not the infrastructure or you know the back end that you're you're building. It is it is a hundred percent the people. And what do you think that tipping point is? I agree. I think there's like a lot of founders. Um, it's just so easy to kind of keep people instead of fire them. Firing them is never fun for anyone. So, you know, the people founders tend to hold on to the wrong people and keep them in the wrong seats for too long. Um, what is this tipping point that you're talking about? Is it five employees? Is it like, you know, what is, what do you mean by that tipping point? I think at, at 10 employees, you need to be able to check in and you need to be able to question, have we, are, do we have the solid, and do we have a solid foundation to quickly be scaling on top of this? Are these first 10 people setting the culture, the tone, the work ethic, and, you know, like also checking in on like lack of toxicity and gossiping. And you have to make sure that those, those first 10 are going to set the stage for the next 20, the next 40, and the doubling that happens after that, it starts at these first 10. I mean, you mentioned something that's, that's another topic I feel strongly about us having to change a culture on, which is this concept of, of firing. Mm-hmm. It feels like a dirty word. It feels like talking about politics or money. It's like people don't want to talk about it. And I think we have to rebrand it as well in many ways. It's not It's not saying that like you are doing a bad job. We need you to leave. It's that for any point of a company or a certain phase and it's there's a certain culture, not everyone fits the mold. There's a lot of pieces to make sure that that one individual fits in at this time of the business. Yeah. And yeah, we just need to be open about folks that aren't the right fit. It's not about firing. It's question of fit. I agree with that completely. And I also think that there needs to be, you know, a, um, 
an offboarding process in place. And I think that early stage companies don't think about what that process should look like. And I think it's really important because otherwise you risk burning bridges, you risk, you know, not giving that person the confidence needed for their next gig or whatever it is. Like you said, a lot of times it's not because the person did anything wrong. It's they're just not a good fit for that next phase of growth, um, which is understandable from both sides, but communicating that and allowing there to be some sort of offboarding process in place so that they both know what to expect instead of a, Hey, you're done today, <laughs> which, yeah. which, you know, which can happen with, um, you know, founders who have never managed people before, which is very common. That's right. How you support the exit of an individual in the business will say everything about your leadership. Yes. And you want that person to be able to walk away, still being able to look back at your business, look back at you as a leader with high regard. And mm -hmm. you also don't want to be in a position where you feel uncomfortable and you're not equipped to be able to offboard successfully. So then you just don't do it. And that is then what begins the process of the long journey of bringing on the wrong talent and unfortunately hindering your long-term business. And we, we all, it's, it's definitely part of running a company that we are, as I think as a culture, we don't talk about enough. I agree. Couldn't agree more. Um, we are running out of time. Unfortunately, I've been having such a blast in this conversation, but I want to hear what is next for Bobby? What is next for Bobby? Well, I'd love to say we're going to be developing all of these new products, but we don't want to. We want to nail infant formula. We have put out a world-class product, and now we just need to get it into the hands of as many people as possible. And honestly, shifting our focus to spending more time changing the culture and conversation around what it means to feed your child. In five years, I want to look back and be able to see a completely different culture on how we feed our babies. If we do that, I think we've done our job. That's awesome. And in terms of final advice you have for aspiring entrepreneurs or you know business operators tuning in, what other advice do you have? I'll underscore something I said earlier, which is every move you make plays into your future. And I am so grateful for my history on my past and my experience, but it's also about how I engaged in those relationships and those learnings. Just remember your, your history plays in and you got to own your mistakes. You got to wear them proudly. You got to recover, but uh, there's no such thing as I'm just starting from scratch. Yeah. Well, Laura, thank you so much for your time and sharing your inspiring story. Um, really appreciate you being on the show today. Absolutely. And congrats on your little one. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thankfully. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.